Chapel, Mason City. First Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I've entitled this message, How the Chosen Live. So 1 Peter is written to Christians that have been forced from their homes due to harsh persecution. They fled and they'd settled down in a strange land. Now, they were not liked and they were treated harshly as outsiders in the places that they'd settled. This letter that Peter writes is to comfort and instruct them. It's like medicine to weary believers dealing with trials, suffering, and difficulties. How should they live in a world where they are misunderstood, treated poorly, oppressed by a harsh, violent government, ridiculed and hurt for their beliefs? That's First Peter. That's what he's writing about. Now, it certainly speaks to us today in 2023 as the world rapidly becomes more and more post-Christian. In this passage, Peter instructs us how to live as God's people in a world that rejects him. So, since God has called us as his people, we must renounce sin, grow spiritually, embrace our identity and mission, and live as his representatives. Those are the things we see in this passage. What God wants Christians to do in a world that is increasingly hostile towards Christ, in a world that is increasingly post-Christian, what he wants us to do is he wants us to renounce sin, grow spiritually, embrace our identity and mission, and live as his representatives. And in fact, you can see the outline. Uh, it's just three parts. It's very simple. That's where we're going today. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in Scripture, in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Father in heaven, we submit our hearts to you, our minds, 
our strength. And Lord, as we come today, we want to love you with our mind as we study your word. And so we do pray for your Holy Spirit to enlighten us, enlighten our thinking, enlighten our ability to understand. Beyond the mere words of a man, we pray that your Holy Spirit teaches to us, God, help me to deliver a message in a way that's clear and that your Spirit would speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God's people, number one, renounce sin and they grow spiritually. Look at verse one, please. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, and so on. So anytime it starts with the word therefore, you've got to say, well, this is a conclusion to something else, right? I mean, therefore is a conclusion word. It's kind of a weird place to start a message. So you look at what came before this. Look at verse 23 of chapter one, please. He's been talking to these pilgrims or these strangers, these Christians that have been persecuted and then settled down in a strange land. And he says, uh, verse 23, you have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So what he was doing is he was comforting these Christians as they're dealing with persecution, as they're dealing with hard times. He says, but you have been born again. You have been born again because you heard the word of God. It's like a seed and you believed it and you are no longer uh, in death and darkness and you are born again you're in the light you're you're a new creation in Christ and so he was encouraging with that and so that's the idea when he starts out therefore since you've been born again through the seed of the word of God believing the word of God therefore laying aside all malice and so on so when he's talking about laying aside this word shows up a lot in the New Testament in the Greek and well, I, I put my shirt on the other day, and uh, I'm one of these kind of people that could wear the same shirt like every day of my life. You know, like, I don't, I don't want to spend any time thinking about clothing. You know, like I like to look nice, but I mean, I just, goodness, maybe if I just put them all in order in my closet and just went down the line, then I wouldn't have to think about it. But so I just keep wearing this shirt, and I took it out the other day, and it had a stain on it because I'd spilled coffee on it, and uh, you know, so I cast it off. I laid it aside. That's the idea here in the Greek. Uh, is he says laying aside and then he talks about all these sins it's like a dirty garment like a stained garment as a Christian since you've been born again what God expects you to do then is to throw off sin just to throw it off out of your life the Greek also tells that this, this is a once and for all decisive complete action so what he's saying is Christians as living in this world that's post-Christian living in this day and age that you live in what I expect of you God would say is since you've been born again since you've become this new creation I expect that you have made a clean break from sin in your life. Now, albeit not perfectly, we all have flesh, we all have a sinful nature that still is unfortunately in us until we die and go to heaven or, or raptured one or the other. We still have a sin nature, but it needs to be in our mind that we need to make this, this uh, decision once and for all in life that I'm not going to live in sin. Right? And that's, that's what he's saying here. If you've been born again, if you are a true Christian, you need to say in your mind to God, look, I'm departing from sin. I'm not going to live in sin anymore. Right? That, that needs to be a decisive choice on the part of a Christian. Then he singles out five sins that this particular group was guilty of. Look at them there. Malice. People acting maliciously might use good actions as a disguise for their hidden intent to harm others. That's what malice is. They simply choose to do evil despite all the kindness that they've received. Deceit, uh, literally that word deceit means to catch with bait. 
So the idea is like deceitful people deliberately mislead or trick others by telling lies and things like that. Uh, these people cause an atmosphere of distrust. Peter says these, these Christians, they need to lay that stuff aside. Hypocrisy, uh, that's just simply just pretending to be something that you're not. Hypocrites often say one thing while doing another. They hide their selfish motives. Uh, sometimes they seem very virtuous, but underneath they're just something else. And they uh, present themselves one way and, uh, and really there's something different. They put on a facade to gain favor. These people that hide their true identity, they miss the opportunity of being able to be themselves. Uh, you know, that's one of the greatest things I think about church is, is we can be transparent. We're all a mess here. Look at the guy on the stage here is probably a bigger mess than you realize, you know? And so that's, that's a good thing. Nobody has to put on a front or a face, you know? And uh, that's what he said. They need, to, they need to lay that off. They need to stop pretending like they're something they're not. Now, envy, the next one, envy involves uh, desiring what someone else possesses. Um, it leads to discontent, resentment, unhealthy comparisons. Envy makes it challenging to appreciate the good fortune of others. If all I'm thinking about is I want what you have or somebody else has all the time, I'm going to be a discontented person, and I'm not even going to be able to appreciate it when good things happen to you. You know, something good will happen to you, and inside I'll be like, oh, he must have, must have bought his way to the top or something like that. See, discontent that the envy causes. And then evil speaking is the last one he talks about there. It could be uh, backstabbing. These people murder the good reputations of others through lies and gossip or spreading rumors. These people never seem to realize that they're talking about other people. That's the thing about people that are involved with evil speaking and gossiping and things like that. They, they never realize that they're doing it until they're confronted on it. You know, uh, you say to them, hey, do you realize that nine times out of ten your conversation is about other people? You know, have you ever, have you ever noticed that? And then that's what gossip, gossip ruins a church. Um, it's like a fire burning. Um, and so he says that, you know, as Christians living in a, in a world that's post-Christian, you say you got to make a once and for all decisive action in your mind. You know, I'm casting sin off of me like a stained garment. Now he goes on in verse 2. And he tells them they need to be growing uh, spiritually mature by the word of God. And look what he says in verse 2, as newborn babes. So his audience are brand new Christians. They're, that's what he means by uh, newborn babes. Uh, he means Christians that have just become recent converts. He says, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word. So that word desire there, that's in the Greek, is an intense yearning. And so he says to these Christians, these brand new Christians, you need to have an intense yearning for the pure word of God. Pure meaning uh, there's no ulterior motives in the word of God. There's no guile in it. There's no additives. He says, as a Christian, you need to have a desire for the word of God. That's a good thing to tell Christians right away when they get saved, right? Because I've met some Christians that say they've been a Christian for like 30 years or something that have no desire for the word. He say, are you sure that you're a Christian? <laughs> because, I mean, it says as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the, the word. And then he goes on to say uh, that you may grow thereby. Notice that. Desire the pure word, uh, milk of the word that you may grow thereby. This is how a Christian grows, is by regular intake of the word of God. Now, he's using this illustration of a baby desiring its mother's milk. You know, like, I, I've never, you know, been a mother. But I'll tell you that I can tell the babies desire that stuff. You know, you ever see a baby that's hungry and what? You know, they have a strong desire uh, to get fed. And what... Peter is saying here is, as a Christian, there should be a strong desire to get fed. 
Like a mother's milk brings nutrients to her newborn baby, the pure word of God brings what is needed for the growth of a Christian. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. What he's saying to him is, have you tasted that the Lord is gracious? Have you heard the gospel that saves you and believed it and become a Christian? Because if you've tasted this, if you've tasted that God is good, that he's gracious, there should be a desire for the word of God in your life. That's what he's getting at. Now, kids that are allowed to ruin their appetites with junk food, like the last thing that you ever hear them saying is, man, I really want some broccoli. <laughs> you ever hear kids do I mean, maybe sometimes, but the point is, is if somebody sits and eats junk food all the time, they just don't have any desire for something healthy. And I found that to be true with Christians, that if they ingest junk food all the time spiritually, like, oh man, <laughs> some of the teachers that are on TV that talk about how every day is a Friday and, uh, you know, you can live your best life now and God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and rich. And see, the people that have a taste for that junk food, they, they sit down in a real Bible study and they're like, ah, you know, I don't know. I just, I want some candy, man. I want some ear tickling. Why don't you just boost my self-esteem instead of telling me this Bible stuff, you know? The same thing, like if you have a kid that you've let them spoil their appetites with junk food, they don't require the good thing. And this is why a lot of people, because maybe you're thinking about this today, you're saying, I think what he's saying is that if I'm a true Christian, I'll have a hunger for the word of God. And that's precisely what I'm saying. And so you might be saying, I don't really have a hunger for the word of God, so I don't know. Maybe I'm not a true Christian. That's exactly what I'm saying. That's, that's precisely what I'm saying. Or maybe you are a true Christian that's just so filled with junk food that you don't crave anything good anymore. That, that could be too, you know. Uh, who wants to sit and read a book after they have just watched so many videos that their dopamine is just zapped and drained out of their life? I mean, people don't... Do you want to sit down and read a book for a half hour after you've watched 30-second long reels? I mean, it's just these things scientifically proven are killing people's brains and their ability to concentrate. I mean, so I don't want to go on a rant about that. But, uh, you know, it's something to consider. It's, it's become harder for me to focus and to read, and I used to love it for hours on end, but the more that I fill my mind with, uh, you know, garbage, you know, harder it is to concentrate. So it's like he's saying to Christians, he's like, you need to desire the word that you might grow spiritually because God expects Christians to grow spiritually. He, you know, when you get saved, that's just the beginning. You know, it doesn't stop there. Christianity isn't like, oh, I said a prayer at church one time and now I'm going to heaven and I'm just going to be the same person the rest of my life. That's not how it works. Uh, getting saved is the beginning point and then you get regularly fed the word. You feed yourself daily through your Bible reading and then you, uh, you know, you attend a church hopefully that teaches the Bible and then you get a sermon that's from, you know, that is the Bible and, and hopefully you grow uh, because you apply this stuff and that's God's intention. I want to say that's a Calvary Chapel distinctive. This is why we place such an emphasis on the verse-by-verse -verse teaching of the word of God because right here what God says through Peter is that through the word of God is how people grow. That's what he says right here. You don't grow by experiences, you know. You don't grow by going to a church and having great entertainment and, and a great band and smoke machine and, and uh, you know, an excellent coffee shop and all those things. Those things are good. They can be excellent things. I like good coffee. But you don't grow by those kind of things. You grow by the teaching of the word systematically. 
So his point in short, just like a healthy baby has a healthy appetite for milk, a healthy Christian has a healthy appetite for scriptures. Now, number two, God's people have an identity and a mission. In this following section, verses 4 through 10, what Peter's going to do is he's going to use some Old Testament language. He's going to quote some verses from the Old Testament to draw parallels between the church and Israel. Essentially, what he's going to say is to these new Christians, he's going to say, look, you guys are important to God too. Just like Israel through for thousands of years has been important to God. They had a temple, they had a priesthood, and they offered sacrifices. He's just like that. The church, the Christians, have a temple, a priesthood, and they offer sacrifices. That's what he's going to get at in this next section. That's the whole main point of it. So we're going to kind of take it apart, but that's really the, the main point of it. It would be comforting to them. You know, you're exiled. You wonder, you know, does God even care about me? I don't even know. I'm facing persecution. Well, let me tell you, church, you're just as important to him as Israel is. And that's what he's getting at through here. Look at what he says. Coming to him as a living stone. Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. So here Jesus is likened to a living stone and a stone of the temple. That's the whole idea. In the Old Testament, there was a temple. He says, but you've come to Jesus as a living stone. He's living because he resurrected from the dead. Peter is telling these Christians, you come to Jesus. He is a living stone. He was indeed rejected by men. Remember, Jesus said himself, I came he came to his own. His own received him not. He says, but chosen by God and precious. Peter's speaking to these Christians, telling them, you habitually come to this Jesus, who is a living stone. God chose him, though, even though he's been rejected by men. I got stuck on that word rejected, and I thought for a little bit, why in the world would anybody reject Jesus, you know? Like, if you truly know what he's offering, why would you reject him? Jesus says that people rejected him because he came and brought light and they loved their darkness, so they stayed in darkness. That's what he said a lot of people. And that's true with a lot of people today. They stay away from Jesus because they want to stay in their darkness. They, they like their sin. They don't want to come clean with the Lord, so they stay away from him. You know, that's, that's the case with a lot of people. But that word rejected also tells us that people have the choice to receive or reject Christ. He goes on, verse 5, he says, You also, so he, he likened Jesus to a living stone of the temple. And then he says, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house. So Peter's telling Christians, Jesus is like this living stone that's part of this temple. Like you can picture a temple made with stones, right? But you, as the church, are like living stones that are being built together by God into a spiritual temple. That's what he's saying. So as a Christian, you're like a Lego, right? You ever play with Legos? You ever step on Legos? Oh, she just had a flashback up here. She's like, oh gosh, I remember that. Well, that's what you are as a Christian, but you're a living Lego. You're a living stone that's being built into this spiritual house that God's building called the church, right? You say, well, I go, I go to a church on Sunday. Well, I mean, that's technically not 
really correct biblically speaking. When you become a Christian, you are a building block. You're a stone in the church. The church, uh, you know, you are the church when you're a Christian. You don't necessarily go to church. You are the church. The church just means a called out group of individuals. That's all it means. God called you out of darkness and he brought you into this family called the church, which spans the whole globe. It's every single Christian. And every Christian is like a living stone being built together into this spiritual temple. What an exciting thought, though, right? That God dwells in you and you are a building block of his church as a Christian. He goes on to say, you're a holy priesthood. Now, here's the next metaphor that he uses. Believers are not only the stones that make up the church, but we are also holy priests. Now, what is a priest? Let's talk about that word for a second. Simply, the definition of a priest is a middleman or a mediator. It's a person, biblically speaking, that God has that ministers to the Lord on the behalf of people. So in other words, a priest is the middleman between the people and God. Stands in the gap. In the Old Testament, they offer the animal sacrifices. They do the rituals in the temple. That's what a priest is. But it's interesting that Peter says to his church, he says, you are a holy priesthood. It's really radical what he's saying. There's a lot of implications to this. Just like Israel had priests... You are priests. What this is saying is that as the church, as a Christian, you don't need a mediator to go to God. That's really exciting. That's really good stuff. You don't need a man to stand or anybody to stand in between you and God. You can come there through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. That's why we sing that song, you put you on the highest place, you are the great high priest. That's what it means is that Jesus is the one that stands between sinful man and women and God. And so we can come directly to God through Jesus Christ. We don't come through anybody else. We don't come through any other mediator. What this means, let me put it real blunt, no priest, no pope, no Christian, no pastor, no leader, nobody comes between you and your connection to the Lord when you're a born-again Christian. You come directly to him. That'd be really comforting. He's saying you have direct access as Christians to God himself. In other words, you have this personal, close relationship with God. You talk to him directly through Jesus Christ. So that's a bit about who we are. He's getting in. Remember I said this, this heading is the identity. Uh, he's comforting them with their identity. He's saying, you're living stones in the temple. Uh, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now God's presence dwells in you as a Christian. And you have direct access to him. Because uh, you're a priesthood and you're coming to Jesus who is also a living stone. And then here's a little bit about what we do. Look at it. It goes on. It says, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So he's still on the uh, picture of, you know, he's saying you're, you guys are a priesthood. We're a priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. Now, a little Old Testament history is appropriate here. In the Old Testament time, before Christ went to the cross, the way that man was able to approach God was through, it had to be through animal sacrifice. There had to be bloodshed as a temporary covering for man's sin. So this is how it looked. If you were an Israelite, you would go to the temple 
and you would bring animals and you would meet the priest at the door and it was in the tabernacle, which was a tent in, in really Old Testament times and eventually became a building, a temple. And you would come there and you would bring sacrifices and the priest would take those sacrifices and go through a ritual and sacrifice animals and put sprinkled blood on the altar and all these different things. And what that would do is it would provide a temporary covering for your sin. A kafar is the Hebrew word. And it means, a temper, it means a covering. So there would be this covering, but you would have to do this repeatedly over and over again. You'd have to bring uh, offerings because you would keep sinning, and so you'd have to keep bringing offerings. Now the priests in the temple, they would make the offerings for the people. They would make offerings for themselves because they were sinners. And they would also make offerings on the Day of Atonement for the whole nation. Now, so... That's the language of sacrifice, right? Obviously, all of this culminated fully in Christ. When he was slain and his blood was the once-for-all offering. So all of that priesthood and all of that stuff in the Old Testament was done when Jesus died. It was all done. The book of Hebrews uh, talks about this stuff clearly. What Peter means in our text when he says that you as the church are a holy priesthood, that offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You don't offer animal sacrifices. You offer yourself. Romans 12, verse 1 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So the sort of sacrifices that God expects from his people is that they offer themselves fully. That you lay down your life and you say, I live for Jesus. That's, that's the sacrifices that we bring. The Bible says we bring a sacrifice of praise. So things like praise and worship and service and giving and all of these things, these are the spiritual sacrifices that the church offers to God now. I like how it says there that it's acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I think that that's something worth noting because there are people today that assume that they're right with God and they might say, well, I do all kinds of things for God. I religiously observe uh, these things or those things or I went on a religious pilgrimage and I'll tell you what, the only kind of sacrifices, the only kind of things that God accepts are the ones that come through Jesus Christ. It says right there, sacrifice is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So kind of this idea today that everybody can approach God their own way, it's not true. The only people that can approach God, the only, the only way that he will be approached is through Jesus Christ. He's made that clear uh, throughout his scriptures. So God's people have an identity and a mission. They are like living stones of God's temple who are a priesthood that offers spiritual sacrifices to God. And in verses 6 through 8, we see that they believe in Jesus. Look at verse 6. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he who believes on him will by no means uh, be put to shame. So Peter quotes this passage from Isaiah here, and the point that he's making is he's saying that Jesus is this chief cornerstone. Now, what the chief cornerstone is in building practices is it would be the first brick that's laid as the building is being built. 
So you'd lay this first brick, and it had to be perfectly square. It had to be perfectly true. And all of the walls were built off of that. So this thing was the most important brick in the whole thing, right? Makes sense, right? You have to have a good square. You know, if you want the walls to be like plumb and straight, they must not have used one of those in my house. Man, oh man, try to work on your house and nothing is square in the whole thing. But (laughs) this uh, chief cornerstone is like the most important thing. It's the foundation really stone of the whole thing. And so what Peter's getting at is he says, you know, he's quoting Isaiah, and Isaiah 700 years before said, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. He's talking about Jesus is the foundation of the whole thing. And whoever believes in him, uh, would literally read, will not be disappointed. That's a really good thing today. You can guarantee that if you trust in Jesus Christ, you'll never get let down. Now, I don't know if, how long you've been following the Lord or if you've been following the Lord truly or, or what, but can you testify that Jesus is faithful? And he, I mean, he doesn't let you down. You will never be ashamed. You will never be uh, disappointed by following Jesus Christ. You might get disappointed in yourself a whole bunch, <laughs> you know, which, but uh, he will never let you down. It's a beautiful thing. So where he says, he goes on there, then he says, therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So he's quoting this passage from Psalms and another one from Isaiah here. And notice verse 7. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, in other words, the ones who don't trust in Jesus, this stone, this foundation, this cornerstone, he becomes a stone that people trip over. Now, a very simple way to understand this is for those of you that have trusted Christ and, and your life is in his hands and you know him and you love him, he's precious to you. But to people that are disobedient to him, people that are rejecting him, rejecting the gospel, they trip over him. They get offended by him. That's what he's saying here. God has so skillfully put Christ as this, this chief cornerstone in everything. He's the center. He's the foundation of everything. And those who receive him, to them, he's precious. But to the people that don't receive him, they, just, they trip over him. They can't even understand. Some people, the people just can't even understand. How in the world is this Jesus stuff? This doesn't even make any sense to me. And they're offended by it. You're trying to tell me about Jesus. Ah, Jesus. They're, they're stumbling over the stumbling stone. They're tripping over it. Say, well, I think I'm right with God. I mean, I go fishing, and when I do, I talk to God the whole time I'm out there, but I don't know about this Jesus stuff. Well, you're tripping over the the foundation stone of the whole thing. I like that where he says, to you who believe he is precious. Peter was a rugged fisherman, and he keeps using the word precious over and over again. You know what I mean? Doesn't Jesus do that to people? By the way, he takes guys that are all hard on their exterior, and and, and and then they start using words like precious. (laughs) My stepmom used to have these things called precious moments. Anybody ever have those? Yeah, you know what those are. She had them all. Little kids, like, ooh, they're big. Um, Don't go near them. (laughs) You know, you can tell a lot about somebody by what they consider to be precious. It's definitely a sign of genuine faith in a person is Christ precious to them. Not only, do they, not only do they hunger for the word, but like 
He's precious to them. God wins your heart over. The more that you allow yourself to think about the beauty of all of this, God created people that turn from him, that blaspheme him, that don't want anything to do with him. But he sends his son on this rescue mission to win their hearts over by love. And he dies for them even though they don't deserve it. And the more that you allow yourself to think through this and see how beautiful this is. I mean, everybody, where do you think we all get this desire for like a happy ending and a hero in a story? Where do you think that all comes from, you know? And God comes to win your heart over. And when you've stopped rejecting him and you, and you allow yourself to be, you allow yourself to understand, man, there's billions of people that are into this. There's something to this. I heard a quote the other day that said, don't only come to God because he's useful. Come to him because he's beautiful. He's precious. But verse 7, but to those who are disobedient, these are people, their disobedience is they're refusing to repent of their sin. They're refusing to admit that they've broken God's laws. And so they, God allows them. He says, fine, I love you. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll let you hold on to your position. You don't want to acknowledge your sin before a holy God? Fine, he'll let you stay there. But those, in this case, are the people that are disobedient. And to those people, the stone which the builders rejected, in other words, the leaders of Israel that didn't receive him, they rejected the cornerstone. He has become uh, the chief cornerstone. Uh, he says, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Uh, so when you reject him, which God will let you do, he becomes offensive to you. I think you see that a lot of times where somebody gets saved in a family like one spouse does and the other one doesn't. It's like progressively the one gets more and more hostile towards the whole Jesus thing. It's because they're stumbling over the stumbling stone. Simply put, those who choose to be disobedient will stumble and fall. So <clears throat> God's people have an identity and a mission. They're like living stones in God's temple who believe in Jesus. They have a privileged position, verses 9 and 10. He says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. So here again, he's talking about this royal priesthood, this holy nation. Martin Luther was big about this doctrine in the Reformation called the, the priesthood of the saints, the priesthood of the believer. And Martin Luther, what he was doing was he was rebelling against the Roman Catholic Church at that time with his 95 theses. He was saying, he was saying this whole priesthood that this Roman Catholic Church has set up, it looks a lot like the Old Testament priesthood, like saying that we need to go to God through middlemen and that we need the church for all these different things. And Luther came in the Protestant Reformation and he said, no, no, no. Peter and other places say that Christians are a holy priesthood. In other words, that that system of approaching God, that's not valid anymore. Now everybody comes to God just directly through Jesus Christ and not through mediators. And that's what this passage is all about. Luther made a big deal about this passage. A royal priesthood, a holy nation. And then what, what are we to do as Christians? He says that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now this is what the church does is they get up here like Adam did today and they testify in front of people and they, they proclaim God. You know, God brought me out of darkness and he bought, brought me into light, you know. Um, it, I like how he mentioned that some people don't really feel like they have a testimony because they just kind of grew up in church. I have a cousin that's like that. And, you know, I was approaching him that way. 
cousin-in-law, and I said, I said, yeah, it's, it's pretty neat to see that you're a non-fire Christian because, you know, you grew up in the church, and, and so you don't really, uh, you know. He goes, no. He goes, let me stop you. He goes, I realize I'm the biggest sinner in the place because I was self-righteous. I thought that, you know, that I thought that I was perfect because I grew up in church. He goes, I need Jesus more than anybody because I'm so prideful. And I was like, wow, this is, I never, you know. Sometimes you talk to people that have grown up in church, and it's like they don't understand their need for Jesus at all. It's just like something that was imposed on them as a kid, and they don't, they don't really realize how desperate they are for Jesus. So they can't go around proclaiming the light. You know, he's brought me out of darkness. It's like, where's the darkness that he's brought you out of? Because I guarantee no matter how much you've grown up in church or how, you know, all of us uh, are brought out of darkness into God's marvelous light. That's what it means to be born again. And so it's a beautiful thing. That's a good thing that you get to do as the church is you get to proclaim the praises of him or the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his light. Verse 10 says, you were once not a people, but now are the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. There was a time where you were walking and you weren't a people. You were kind of wandering through life on your own. You didn't really know where you fit and, and what life was all about, but now you're a people. God has brought you together as his people. And he did it as a gift of his mercy. Now, that means that he didn't give us what we deserved. Instead, he gave us his love and grace. He gave us mercy. He didn't, he didn't hold our sin against us because he put it on Christ. That's what it means to have obtained mercy. You've obtained pardon from God. It's like you had the longest record and court case in the world and you went in and they threw it out because Christ paid for it. That's a good thing. You've obtained mercy. Now, so God's people, they renounce sin. They grow by his word. They have an identity and a mission. And finally, here's the last point, And it's kind of quick. It says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Here's an important exhortation for Christians in all times. He says, abstain from fleshly lusts. Now, a fleshly lust you, in 2023, we always associate this word, this lust, we think of it as sexual immorality only. And that's not what it is um, only. It, it includes that. But he's talking about desires that are focused on satisfying physical or worldly needs. That's it. So I could be having a fleshly lust for food. Well, that's a good lust. I mean, that's a good impulse. That's a good desire. I should eat, you know, or else I'm going to die. But a fleshly sinful lust that he's saying to abstain from would be, I have this desire to eat all the time, you know, or to let it master me, right? Or the desire to be in a relationship, that's a good thing. You, you desire to be in a relationship with somebody. But you don't go and, like, compromise yourself to have a relationship with somebody else. Do you know what I mean? Good desire, though. A desire to be liked by people, that's a normal good desire. But you don't let that get perverted into the place to where you're willing to, like, do anything you can to, like, please people so they will like you even though you're, like, miserable inside. Right? You see, that's what he means by fleshly lust. He's saying, Christians, don't let your flesh be your boss. Right? Don't let your body be your boss. Uh, that's what animals do. You know what I mean? They just, they react to all of their impulses. So he's saying... Uh, you know, don't be uh, mastered by these things. It's like what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. You remember in chapter 6, he said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. I like that. Sometimes as a pastor, people have asked me, they say, can you drink? And I'm like, yeah, 
I could drink as much as I want. You can? Yeah, I just don't want to. Well, why not? Well, because I don't like to be under the influence. Because when you're under the influence of something, you're not free anymore. You think, well, I'm free to do whatever I want in this life. I can smoke and drink and do drugs, and I can do whatever I want. I can sleep with people. I'm free to do whatever I want. No, you're not. You're mastered by all those things. You know, I had a stepdad that died rejecting Jesus Christ, and it was like he always talked to me about how he had everything figured out. And it's like, well, why do you have to drink like a half a gallon of whiskey a day to go to sleep at night? You're not free. I'll never take advice from somebody that's a slave to something like that, you know? So that's what Paul says there. All things are lawful. When you're a Christian, the question isn't can I or can't I do something? It's is this good for me? Is this good for my walk with the Lord? Because I just want to please him. And so I don't have time to waste with anything that might master me. So it's very simple. Can you drink as a Christian? Sure. Is it foolish? Maybe for you. Could be. So I won't, just won't be mastered by anything. Dude, I'm telling you, brownies can master me really quickly. I had a bag of them the other day. I took, Craig brought them, and I took four home. And, you know, the idea is to give two to my wife and two to me. And I thought, you know, I'm going to help Erin out and just remove this temptation from her. She doesn't need to be tempted by these things. I don't want her to be mastered by these. And so I just, I macked them down. Boy, four of them. <laughs> That's not right. That's why I don't put brownies in my house, you know, because I just, I know that, you know, all things are lawful. Yeah, you can do things. But the thing is, is you'll get brought into their power. This is why Peter is telling them, listen, Christians, in 2023, what you want to do is that you, want to, you don't want to be mastered by your flesh any more then than you do today, right? You want to live the sort of life where you're mastered by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're not sure if you have the Holy Spirit, you need to ask God to fill you with, your, with his spirit. And then you need to start your day by saying, Lord, fill me with the Spirit. Fill me with your Holy Spirit so I can be mastered by you and not live for my flesh. And then if you mess up a bunch of times a day, you do that over and over again in a day. Christians are to be mastered by the Holy Spirit, not to be mastered by their flesh. That's what he's getting at. Look what he says, verse 12. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, nothing sticks, essentially. He's saying it's so important for Christians living in a post-Christian, anti-Christian world. He says, I want you to be very, very concerned about your conduct among the world. That's what he means by Gentiles, people that are not in the church. He says, I want people to look at you and say, you know what? I want to be a Christian because I look at that person's life and I think that's appealing. That person isn't mastered by their flesh. That's one of the greatest motives that I have for going to the gym, you know, is because I don't think I could stand in front of people and, and look like, you know, I heard a pastor say one time, he goes, how are you going to tell people to quit doing heroin when you can't quit eating chocolate? And I was like, that's a good point, dude. You know, I need some self-control. But it's, it's just like our conduct. Uh, sometimes people see Christians and they're, uh, you know, you know, they're just, they're, sometimes they're very judgmental, very crude. They generalize people. They'll say stuff like, oh, those people on the left. It's like, well, which ones exactly? I mean, you're, you're segregating millions of people, putting them in a little box, and you're talking about the leftists. You know, it's like, come on, man. Using generalizations like that, it, it just makes yourself look ignorant when you do things like that. And it makes Christ look stupid to do things like that, to generalize people and to, and to, let, you know, to tout your beliefs in such a way where you're just generalizing people and, and minimizing and, you know, it's like we have these caricatures of people, like some character, two-dimensional thing of, of the people on the left or whatever it would be. I mean, it could be anything. I'm just, that just came to mind. 
So he says your conduct should be winsome in a, in a world that doesn't like Christ. People should look at you and say, you know, there's something to your life that's appealing. What is that? You know, God help us that all of our lives would, would be like that to other people. We should be concerned about our conduct. Now, in conclusion, you can see God's called us, uh, says his people, and, and we must renounce sin. We must grow spiritually, embrace our identity and mission, and live as his representatives concerned about our conduct. This is how the chosen live.